our fourth week of our sermon series called Fixed and Free, where we are talking about uh, some of the core issues at work in our church right now. And when I say in our church, I mean the denomination of the United Methodist Church. As we know that in a, in a year's time, in February of 2019, uh, there's going to be an important gathering of delegates at something called a general conference. And this is a specially called general conference where they will be voting on specifically uh, finding a way forward uh, for our denomination, specifically as it relates to ordination and marriage of gay persons. And this has been a debate in our church, like many denominations, going back for about 40 years. And so as a church, local church at Lover's Lane, um, we thought it'd be good for us to start the conversation now, to know that these kind of conversations are difficult, but they're necessary, uh, because even though we don't know what next year will hold, we don't know uh, if or what changes will come, and, and we don't know what 2019 and 2020 and 2021 will look like, we do know uh, that when changes are coming, the worst thing you can do is to not talk about the fact that they're coming. Amen? So... We need to get clear about sort of who we are and what we believe and really what the deeper issues are in our denomination. Because one thing you've heard over the last few weeks is that even though we are debating over issues of marriage and ordination, those are not really the issues. Those are symptoms of deeper issues and things about, you know, what do we think about God and what do we think about Jesus and what do we believe about the Holy Spirit? And this week, what do we believe about the church? You know, the church isn't just the place where theology happens. It's, it's a part of our theology. What do we believe about this thing called the church? And what you believe about the church is important because that's going to change a lot of the ways that you live your lives, the ways that you practice as a church. What you believe about the church is in many ways just as important as what you believe about the Holy Spirit or what you believe about Jesus or what you believe about God. And what we'll find today is some of this deeper foundational issues that we're working through a lot of it boils down to what do we believe about the church? And, and to help explain that, I want to start with a basic question. The question is this, what is a Methodist? What is a Methodist? Now, we're an interesting denomination because we have a pretty big tent as a denomination. That's a term we use in church. What that means is we've, we've got pretty wide lanes, I would say, in terms of what you can believe and still call yourself a Methodist. For instance, you can be a traditionalist and be a Methodist. There's a, there's a man named Rob Renfro, who's a very outspoken traditionalist. He is the president of a magazine called Good News Magazine. And Good News Magazine is a conservative pub publication. It, it, it is the voice of traditionalist members in, in the United Methodist Church. And if you go to their website today, you'll see his front page article is, is actually about this uniting Methodist movement that Stan and I and others in the church have participated in. And it's basically talking about how the conversation that we're having right now is not really a helpful one. Right, so you can be a United Methodist and be a traditionalist like Rob and still be a Methodist. Or you could be uh, like a guy that's more local named Eric Folkerth. Maybe you know his name. He's the pastor at a church called North Haven UMC, not too far from here. And Eric is very justice-oriented. He is a progressive theologian, a progressive pastor. And if you go to any sort of activist march in the city of Dallas, you're, you're liable to see uh, Eric there leading the way with his clergy collar. Uh, he's very socially active. He's got a social justice-minded ministry, uh, and he is a Methodist. And then we've got someone like Stan, who's now a grandpa. Did y'all know that? Did y'all know Stan's a grandpa now? Yay! Grandpa Stan. As a staff, we are all required to call him Grandpa Stan now. Um, you got someone like Stan, who's weird. <laughs> and he would say this. He describes himself as a Wesleyan evangelical. 
which is kind of like I want to have my cake and eat it too, right? He, he, he describes himself as someone who is orthodox theologically, but then on some social issues, he finds himself in a more progressive stance. Really what he is is a centrist. And so Stan loves to joke that he, he's too liberal for his conservative friends, and he's too conservative for his liberal friends. Anyone else feel like that sometimes in the room? Yeah. And so Stan is also a Methodist. So you can be a traditionalist, you can be a progressivist, you can be a centrist, and you can still call yourself a Methodist. And I'm about to, in about a month, go into a, a room uh, for an interview called the Board of Ordained Ministry. And there, there's going to be a room full of people, kind of like Stan, who are going to grill me on questions about my theology. And when I walk into that room, it's going to be filled with Methodist clergy and Methodist lay members. And I'm going to know that every one of them disagrees on any number of doctrinal issues. That they would have disagreements over the historicity of the Old Testament. They would disagree about whether or not Jesus was literally born from a virgin, whether or not his body was literally resurrected or spiritually resurrected. They would disagree about whether there's legitimacy in other faith traditions outside of Christianity. They would disagree on any number of social issues. Don't even get them started on that. And they all consider themselves Methodists, and rightly so. So what we've got is this very wide lane in terms of doctrine, in terms of belief in the Methodist church. We don't ask that you believe exactly this, 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 down a line of 600 items in order to call yourself a Methodist. There's a lot of wiggle room in here. But, so we've got wide lanes in terms of our beliefs. But in terms of practice, the way that we do church, the things that we do, We've been narrowing those lanes ever since we started our denomination in 1968. We started out with a relatively thin book of discipline. It's been getting thicker and thicker and thicker ever since. And as the book of discipline, our, le our law book, gets thicker, the, the lane gets narrower, yeah? And we've added more and more ink to the pages because we want to control how people do church, even if we disagree about what we believe. Now, I'm going to suggest, going into our scripture this morning, that that doesn't make sense. If you're going to have wide lanes in terms of beliefs as a denomination, if you're going to draw wide lanes in terms of doctrine, meaning you can go to, into any number of Methodist churches and hear very different interpretations on the word of God and on scripture and on beliefs. Now, there are essentials, but there's a lot of wiggle room in there. If you're going to have wide lanes in terms of belief and then try to have narrow lanes in terms of practice, that's dissonant me that doesn't add up that doesn't make sense because our practices ought to come from our beliefs that's what I believe about the church what we think about church matters I believe that our practices come from our beliefs so if you've got wide lanes of beliefs and you've got narrow lanes of practices it doesn't really make sense to me it doesn't add up and not just to me this opinion of mine comes from something called the Bible and it comes from the book of Acts Chapter 15, where the early church, the earliest Christian movement, is encountering something very similar to what we're encountering today. There is a debate being had in the early Christian movement, but what's really going on is deeper issues trying to wrestle with who we are and what we're about and what do we believe about this Christian movement that we are in the middle of. So on one side of this debate, see if this sounds familiar, you've got a group of traditionalists. And, and, and these traditionalists are afraid of losing their historical identity, of being Jewish at the time. And so the issue of the day is, is they want to demand that all new male believers be circumcised. Guys, ready to sign up? Sounds like fun. They want every male to be circumcised, even if you're an adult and brand new to the faith, 
including non-Jews, and they want everyone to abide by Jewish uh, dietary customs as well. These things are important to them. They, they are part of what makes them Jewish, and, and they don't want to lose being Jewish in order to be Christian. So they say, this is our heritage. This is our tradition. These things are important. Now, on the other end of the debate, you've got a group of progressivists. And last week, we talked about Peter and how Peter had had this heart change inspired by the Holy Spirit. And now he had come to see Gentiles in a new light, meaning non-Jews. He had been given this revelation by the Holy Spirit where no one is unclean whom God names clean. And, and so he realizes he can no longer withhold the gospel from Gentiles simply because they're uncircumcised or because they eat unclean food. And so he preaches the gospel to Gentiles and the Holy Spirit pours itself out. And so Peter finds himself in this weird position of now being a progressivist. And he realizes that maybe there's more to this faith than just the Jewish tradition. And, and, and he has had his personal heart be changed. And so then we've, we've got this debate going on between this camp of traditionalists and this camp of progressivists. And the church is kind of caught in the middle. Does that sound familiar? Now the issue of the day is circumcision and, and what you can eat. But the deeper seated issues are the same ones we're facing today. Now, we've got to understand, in terms of their beliefs, you know, Judaism had a pr pretty narrow belief set. You had to believe very specific things to consider yourself a Jew. And when Jesus came on the scene and began to teach, he expanded that belief system. He expanded what you could believe. He expanded the, the faith of the Jewish people to include all people. He expanded it to include people with disabilities, to include people from different nations and different ethnicities, to include people from different cultures. He, he, he was constantly expanding what it could could mean to, to, to be a Jew, right? His, Jesus died believing himself to be Jewish. He didn't think that he was starting some brand new religion. Most people who start new religions don't know they're doing it, yeah? John Wesley died an Anglican. He started the Methodist church. Whoops, uh-oh. Jesus did the same thing. He died himself a Jew. You know, even Paul, the founder of the church, believed himself to be Jewish the entire time. They thought they were expanding the belief structure of the Jewish faith. But then we get to this issue where as this belief structure is expanding and as we go and meet new people, what do we do about this narrow practice? Because you want to talk about narrow. The Jews had 600 some odd laws that you had to follow to, to really abide by the Jewish practice set. So that's a narrow lane. What do we do about that when the belief lane is getting wider and the practice lane is staying narrow? Well, let's see. Beginning in Acts chapter 15 verse 7. Peter is coming to a group called the Council of Jerusalem. This is like a general conference that we're going to have in a year's time. Peter's coming to deliver a testimony to testify as to what he has seen take place in the Gentile people after he evangelized them. So let's see what, we'll see the words on, on your screens. After there had been much debate, yeah, sound familiar? Yeah, nothing changes. Peter stood up and said to them, my brothers... You know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And next, yep. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So let's, let's unpack what he just said. That was a lot. That was, that was dense, what he just testified to the council. What Peter is doing, he's, he's laying a classic argument out for including new people into the fold that have 
been excluded previously. This, what, he's, what he's saying, his argument he's making, we see this argument made time and time again throughout history to include people of different races, of different genders, of different cultures, of different everything, to include them in the leadership and life and love of the church. What does Peter do? First is Peter makes it personal. Peter shares, shares a personal testimony. You know that God, told, God sent me to go and preach to these Gentile people. I've been there. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen the Holy Spirit poured out upon them. Th- this, is, this has become real and personal for me. And what's important about that is he, he leverages the fact that God's the one that sent him. He says, it wasn't me. I didn't go out looking for my heart to be changed. In fact, if we know anything about Peter, it's that he's pretty sure of himself and his beliefs until the Holy Spirit gets a hold of him. But he says, it's, it's God who sent me to go and have this experience. God is the one who changed my heart. And then he witnesses to the Spirit. He says, I've seen the fruit come out of their ministry in their life. He's saying, I've seen the Holy Spirit poured out on these people. I can't deny it. Even though if you'd asked me six months ago, I'd want to deny it. He said, I can't deny it. And then he, he reminds them that it's God who's really the judge. See, a lot of times in these debates, what we end up doing is we try to put ourselves on the throne. Have you ever done that in your life? Have you tried to put yourself on the throne of judgment? It feels good at first. It kind of feels good. The throne sits way high up, right? It's got a nice view of the world. You get to look down at everybody when you're up there. It feels good, doesn't it? You're like, oh, look at you, commoners, peasants, yes, yes. I'm so. The problem is that we don't belong up there. And Peter has to remind us, just like we get reminded time and time again in Scripture, if there's one recurring theme that we see so much, it's that we are never supposed to sit on the throne of judgment. In fact, when we do that, we forget who the throne belongs to. We forget that we are all facing the judgment of God one day. We don't face each other's judgment. When I die, it doesn't matter what you say about me. That's not going to get me in or out of heaven. What only matters is what God thinks of me. Amen? And that's the baseline thing we better believe, right? It doesn't matter what your neighbors think of you. It matters what Jesus and God think of you. And so then at the very end, he calls for this unity around Jesus, He says, isn't this really about bringing people to Jesus anyways? He says, on the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So many times we get into these debates, we get into these debates, and they last decades. And, you know, part of you, I'm coming in as a young pastor at the end of this long, long debate, and I recognize that that people have been arguing over this for years before I was even born. So I, I have to have an ounce of humility when I come into this. But part of me wants to walk in and go, are we really still talking about this? You know how much time we could be spending actually telling people about Jesus? You know how much time we could actually be spending helping to heal the world, helping to fix places that need it desperately? Instead, we want to get together and just bicker and argue. How is that building God's kingdom? Can't we just get this back to the main thing? Have you ever felt like that when you're looking at a debate, whether it's this one or another one in your life? Aren't we losing sight of the main thing? So Peter's testimony ends, and it's received by the Council of Jerusalem and they are mulling it over. And it's a, it's, a, it's a powerful testimony. And it ends up changing the hearts of those who hear it. But then a really interesting thing happens next. This guy named James speaks up. And he's speaking on behalf of the council in Jerusalem. And James, if you know anything about James, he wrote this letter that's also in the Bible. And it's a, it's a doozy, right? I always joke that James is kind of our heavy metal uh, letter writer. Because, I mean, it's like, yeah, I know Jesus is gracious and everything, but you're still a terrible person. You know that, right? Like, like he, he, he's kind of a downer if you get into his letter a little bit. But really what James is about is he wants us to take seriously the, the fact that our actions have value. 
that, that our actions are important. You know, he's a little worried that all of this talk of grace and mercy will make people think that their actions don't matter anymore. And he wants to remind us, no, guys, what we do is important. It won't save us, but it's important. And if we lose sight of that, that's a problem. So James is a bit more of a traditionalist. You know, he doesn't loosen up as easy. He kind of likes the laws and the rules. He kind of thinks these things make us better people. And he's about to speak up on behalf of the council. And what he says is fascinating. Picking up in verse 13. After they'd finished speaking, James replied, My brothers, listen to me. Simeon, so he's talking about Peter, but he's using his old name. Simeon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take form among them, or to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets as it is written. So what he's doing here is important. He hears the testimony of Peter, and he accepts it, but then he brings scripture in to say, hey guys, because he's talking to traditionalists now. He's translating Peter's testimony for traditionalists. He's saying, this is not brand new. This is built out of scripture. Let me show you, he says. After this I will return, and I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen. From its ruins I will rebuild it, and I will set it up. This is all from the book of Amos. You can look it up. So that all the other people may seek the Lord, the, even all the Gentiles. See, he's saying, in Amos, book of Amos, Old Testament, it's talking about Gentiles, over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago. James goes on to say, therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God. Now, see, that, that, that's a traditionalist way of saying we should include them. Right? He doesn't say, I have decided that we should run out with open arms. He said, we shouldn't trouble them. Right? So he's, he's not where Peter is. Right? He, he's still getting there, but he understands and accepts that, you know what, this is probably a direction the church should be going. But then he says this, but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. Now you're like, Scott, we were doing so good. And then you read that. That's an important line. I don't want us to run from it because what's in that line is sort of a key for me this past week as I was wrestling with this. James does two really important things with his response to Peter's testimony. Like I said before, first, he accepts it. And not only that, he bolsters it by bringing in scriptural evidence that Peter has not lost his mind. That including Gentiles is in fact scriptural. That there is something about God's love that is always looking to expand. And yes, this is Bible breathed. The second thing he does is he makes this turn. That at first sounds a little like, whoa, where's James going? He says, but we should write to them. What he's talking about here is this church in Antioch. Now this is all stuff that's beyond the text that you got to dig in and do some research in order to see. You're not going to see it in the book of Acts. So don't come back later and be like, Scott, where did all that come from? This is, this is sort of a historical context that's helpful to know. He's talking about a church in the town of Antioch. It's a Gentile community where they know that Gentile ministry is exploding. This is a church that's very Gentile-friendly and Gentile-inclusive. And he says, okay, we need to write them a letter that basically says this. It says, yes, we accept you, we embrace you, we include you in the life of this church. We're not going to ask you to change. We're not, ask you, we're not asking you to be circumcised. We're not asking you to change everything about the way that you eat. I'm going to ask you to do four things, he says. He says, I'm going to ask that you not include idols in your worship. Right? The, the Greek culture was big on idolatry. So he's saying, you know what? That's a part of your old faith that you can't bring into this new one. You've got to cut the, idol, the idolatry out. Number two. He says, no fornication. Now, that one, you're like, where are we going, Scott? 
there is a cultural practice back in the day of having prostitution in temples as a part of pagan feasts. So he's saying the word he uses is the same word they use for that practice. He says that behavior, that, that, that is not going to fly in this new church. You've got to cut that out because that's not healthy practice. If we're going to be here, we're here for God, not for other stuff. Amen? Let's keep moving. You're like, amen, let's move on. He says, also avoid whatever has been strangled or from blood. Now, these are a couple of dietary things he's asking them to change. But this is really important. The church never establishes dietary code for non-Jews. This is a personal request that James is making for this new church. Why would he do this? Later on, we see Paul writing a letter to the Romans where he says, you know, I've found that it's okay to eat anything you want. So if someone wants to eat pork, eat pork. If you don't, don't. What James is doing here is important because he's asking them pastorally to consider how their actions might affect their more traditional brothers and sisters. Because he knows that in Jerusalem and elsewhere, he's got some Jewish Christians who if they go to church and they see people stuffing their faces full of pork, it is going to drive them absolutely bonkers and it's going to drive them away from the church. And he says, you know what, as we walk through this season together, what he's essentially saying is, I need you to consider what it means for traditionalists to remain in relationship with you. And I'm not asking you to change anything about yourselves. I'm not asking you to be less Christian. I'm not asking you to get circumcised. I'm not asking you to change the way that you eat in your own home. I'm asking you, when you come to church, if you can do these four things, then I think we can maintain unity in the church. And we can embrace each other, and we can love each other, and we can walk through this together. Now, I think this is critical for us because many times in these conversations, we hit a boiling point, and we're kind of at it right now, where we just want to say, fine, let's just split. And if you're on the progressivist side of this issue, you're probably sick and tired of talking about it, and you're just ready for justice to rain down and for righteousness to flow like an ever-flowing stream. And if you're on the traditionalist side of this, you're probably thinking, I'm not there, I'm never going to be there, I, I'm sick and tired of it too, can't they just go? And I think James and Peter represent a beautiful bridge building in the church where Peter says, listen, I've seen, I used to think differently. I see this differently now. God has led to a change in my heart. And I can't possibly do ministry the same way again. So I'm asking for us to include and expand and, and widen our lanes of practice to match our wide lanes of doctrine. And James says, you know what, I hear that. And I can sense that what you're saying is true and authentic and God-breathed. And I don't know that I'm there. And I know that I've got a lot of people who aren't there either. And so what if we do this? What if we find a way to walk through this together today? And that means that those of us who want to progress with leaps and bounds, may, maybe we have some considerations for those who are more traditional. And for those who are more traditional, maybe we need to trust that God is moving in a way that you don't understand yet. And that's okay too. And these two men managed to, to bring unity to this Christian movement that is in its infancy and had every reason to fizzle out and die. But it didn't. And not only that, as Peter takes this message and Paul takes this message and Barnabas takes this message of good news to Gentiles, it explodes. And the church in Jerusalem is fine too. And somehow they're able to maintain this unity, not because anybody had to be 100% right, but because they were willing to do what they needed to do to maintain relationship while also including and celebrating and, 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 and asking people to be a part of leadership in the church, no matter where they're from. I think this story it offers an interesting parallel to what we're going through today, because I think the way that we're going to maintain unity as a denomination is to acknowledge that we've got wide lanes in what we believe. 
And maybe we want to go to narrower lanes. I know there are Methodists who wish we had narrower lanes in belief. And maybe that's you. And you know, the benefits of that, you go to any church, you know, take, for instance, the Catholic Church. You go to any Catholic church in the world, you're getting the same exact mass, yeah? You got former Catholics in the room, you know what I'm talking about. You go to Catholic mass in the Philippines, in London, England, or in Muleshoe, Texas, it is the same daggum mass, right? It's that you know when to stand, when to sit, you know what the priest is going to say, nothing crazy is going to happen, it's consistent. And their practices are narrow too. You know exactly what you're allowed to do and exactly what's not. You know exactly what the church blesses and what the church doesn't. And it is very defined. And that is a big old ship that isn't going down anytime soon, is it? But we have a wider lane in belief here in the Methodist church. And I don't know that shifting to a narrower belief is the answer. I think the wide belief is, is, is what, part of what makes us work. I think it's one of the reasons all of us are here today because we get to come to a place where we know we're going to be challenged and, and our own minds will be expanded and we're going to have to face things that we wouldn't face outside in our bubbles. And so maybe it's time, like James and Peter had to wrestle through, maybe it's time to take these practices and expand them a bit more. And not to run off lumps, jeeps, and, uh, not to run off in, in leaps and jumps ahead and, and, and leave behind brothers and sisters who simply are not there yet, but to create freedom and, and, and allow ourselves the, the freedom of movement to meet the Holy Spirit in whomever the Holy Spirit dwells. All right, I've talked too much. At this point, I want to invite Pastor Stan Copeland up to finish this sermon um, for me. Uh, God, I'm coming to fix it. Thank you. <laughs> I, I only said fornication twice, so... <laughs> It was a good one. That was three. You're out. <laughs> All right. Um, well, before I say a few words, um, I think this has been a, a wonderful uh, message this morning, but I want to show y'all something if you'll look to the screen. <laughs> Woohoo! I'm Grandpa. <laughs> Believe me, there's more where that one came from. You know, Scott mentioned that we are a people of a a big tent, right? Uh, we are. And he used the analogy also of the, of the large lane or broad lane. But I, I want to say one thing that, that, that Peter really did say it so very well in that the pole that holds up this tent is grace. That's the pole that holds up the tent and allows it to be wide enough for there to be all kinds of people underneath. And I want to say with Methodist, I mean, Scott's going to come before the board in a few weeks with Reagan. Reagan's coming before the board today, um, or, or tomorrow, rather. Uh, Sarah Luganbill and uh, JB and Kennan are all coming before the board. And they're going to be asked some things about what is fixed in the United Methodist Church. What is that core that keeps us together? And there is a core. And if we stay with the tent analogy, it's kind of like the stakes and the tethers, you know, that, that keep that tent tight and pulling toward that uh, or away from that pole that keeps everything together. And for us, and we're going to say more about this uh, soon, but for us it has to do with what we call um, the articles of confession and, 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 and those essentials to our faith, Wesley's sermons, the explanatory notes, they're going to all, all these um, candidates are going to have to answer these questions. I dare say that it's, it's also that, that stake and, and, and tether that relates to the divinity of Christ and, and also the historic creeds and the general rules of the church. You know, our general rules are three. Do no harm. 
do good, and stay in love with God. Now, there's a lot more to that, but those are, are, are the main three, the general rules of the church. You know, last week I asked the question in my sermon related to that, um, that passage that I think Scott used last week about Peter and Cornelius. And you know, Cornelius, this Gentile, is filled with the Holy Spirit and, and, and everybody in the house is filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter goes ahead and he baptizes them baptizes them. He said, what am I to do? I mean, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And so my question was, what, who is your Gentile? You know, who are your Gentiles? And today I want to ask a different question. Who, who is your Cornelius? Because it's when Peter came into a relationship with a man he did not know, but the Holy Spirit brings them together through these visions, that they have this relationship. And when the council meets, that Scott spoke so well about this morning, when the council meets, they take up the matter, what are we going to do with the Gentiles? And Peter has this testimony about Cornelius. Friends, I want to share a testimony today that I've literally, literally been uh, thinking about for nearly two years. Um, and it has to do with my Cornelius. Or, or a dear friend that has had me thinking about these matters that Scott and we have been addressing uh, related to fixed and free. Now I want to say I've put a lot of prayer in this. Um, but I, I think it's time to just come out and say what's on my heart. You, you know, one of the problems I think we have in our culture today is there's not enough honesty. There's too much talk about fake and, and, and false, and there's not enough honesty. When Tom Shipp first dedicated our, 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 our very first um, chapel, he said, I want to build a church where there are no shams, no make-believes, and no halfway measures. So today I want to be real honest with you as your pastor. And I hope what you hear from me today in talking about a friend of mine, I hope that, that you hear me sharing pastorally with you, testimonially. Not preaching at you or telling you that you need to come to this way or the, or the highway. But we have to have more of these kinds of conversations, I think, that are honest. And not just through this series, but after this series is done. Now I want to say that, um, that before the 2016 General Conference back in May of 2016, I believe it was, in Columbus, Ohio, a United Methodist ordained elder and his partner of nearly three decades were married in a United Methodist church in downtown Columbus, Ohio on the eve of General Conference. And... Um, they were married in a United Methodist church with United Methodist clergy present and holy hell broke loose. And so people went to general conference with knowing that the discipline had been violated in this way or at least some thought it had been and others thought, well, no, justice was served. And you had the big tent gathering of general conference with all of this dissension. Now when I went to seminary in, in Kansas City, 
Tammy and I had been married for two weeks when we moved to Kansas City. We'd been, married, we'd been educated 100 miles from the house, both of us, and we moved to Kansas City to go to seminary. And it was a strange land, and we were meeting new friends, and we were excited about where we were. All of us had in common that we were pursuing a call that God had on our lives to be United Methodist pastors. And David, Meredith, was one of those colleagues. The same David Meredith who married his partner of nearly 30 years in Columbus, Ohio. So when I hear talk about David Meredith, it's not too flattering. It, 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 um, it doesn't sit well with me because I know David. And David was one of those colleagues that, you know, you you quickly kind of know you resonate with because theologically we were kind of on the same page. He was pretty orthodox uh, and, and, and yet had this social bent that I thought was so Wesleyan and um, such a pursuer of social holiness and justice. And, and, and this mix was one that really did resonate with me. He, he, he was one who had that joy of the Lord in his heart that when he came into the room he had this countenance of joy that was spread all over his face and you just immediately fell in love with David as did all of our professors because he was brilliant. He was the teacher's pet across the board. And we didn't hate him for it, but it did bug us. And, and quickly, David and I and some other friends became um, socially, um, uh, friendship-wise, and we, we also studied together. I mean, we, we became pretty tight. We were right. Everybody else was wrong. And as one of my seminary colleagues said, you know, none of us love Jesus like David loved Jesus. And um, he... And another one of our colleagues, Carol, uh, we noticed they were getting pretty friendly. In fact, you might even say romantic. In fact, they were getting pretty serious. And then David had to deal with a reality that was very painful at that time. And he dealt with the reality that he was homosexual. And though he loved Carol and Carol loved him, it just it wasn't going to work. And I remember our tight group of friends, how we came around David and how we came around Carol. And how we loved him through that time that was, was so painful before it became freeing. But, but I want to say that for years I have dealt with my friendship with David related to his call to ministry. And I would say that most of our friends would agree that no one was more called by God to Methodist, United Methodist ministry than was David. And the, the quandary of, 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 of his being gay and pursuing ordination, as long as he wasn't a practicing homosexual, it'd be okay. But So I've often asked myself the question, about David's call. 
You know, there are only really three things that could be true about that call. Either David misunderstood God and he wasn't called at all, and, 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 and we were pretty faked out too because it looked like that David was surely called and surely full of the Lord and, and filled with the Holy Spirit, so maybe he just misunderstood God. Or maybe God was just as surprised as David was when he came out. We don't surprise God. Or just maybe. God knew David was gay before David knew David was gay. And called him into ministry. I'll tell you what, when you have someone who's in your family or your close friendship circle... And they're struggling with these issues of ordination. It changes things. Because it's no longer just a a struggle related to ordination or marriage. But it becomes real centered on a friend. Now, after David was ordained, he, he meets Jim. And they're in love. And and for 10 years, Tammy and I, with six other couples, including Jim and David, vacationed together. And we shared our ministries together. We shared our hearts. You know, we shared... uh, We shared our passions... We shared our call. And the very last time we got together as a group, we were going to meet in Michigan on Lake Walloon, and Jim and David were the hosts that year. And Nobody could come but Tammy and me, and by this time, Zach and Emily were born. And so Zach and Emily and Tammy and I with Jim and David spent a very, very wonderful week together. And so, on the eve of General Conference 2016, we get an invitation to a wedding. And we have to make a decision. I mean, I was uncomfortable about the decision if we were to go because I knew it was on the eve of General Conference. I knew it would be politically uh, impactful. But these were our friends. And we'd been invited. None of our other friendship, uh, part of the friendship circle could come except for for Carol. (laughs) It was Tammy and Carol and I there in the balcony of that old church in downtown Columbus at a wedding in a room filled with 450 people completely and totally packed standing room only with 75 clergy in the room and here were the three of us who go back with them as a couple perhaps longer than anybody in the room 
It was an incredible worship service. With members from David's former churches there. David's been an extremely effective pastor for 35 years. There were two of his choirs who were there. There were people in social agencies he'd worked for. Everybody was there. And we worshipped. You know, some of my friends um, who knew I was there said, Why did you go to that wedding and participate in an act that you knew was going to be a lawbreaker? And I can only say that because I've loved and admired David and Jim for three decades. And that when we were asked, we had to make a decision. We chose to go. And I ask you, what would you do? What would you have done? You know, some of you might have been quick to say, I wouldn't have gone. And that's okay. No is a good answer. But believe me, we thought about no. And when you're under this big tent, there, there are those who have convictions that would not allow them to go. And that's, that's, that's who we are. And some of you would have come to the yes conclusion a lot quicker than I did without any hang-ups at all. And that's good too. But we need to all realize that this issue not only is an issue that our culture is dealing with, but it's an issue we deal with in our homes, our closest friendship circles, among our colleagues, and the church will make a decision. And in March, there'll be a meeting of the jurisdiction. And they'll decide in March if David can keep his credentials and continue to be a United Methodist pastor. And and, and I hope that we will consider as a church that it's the movement of the Holy Spirit in our midst that will keep us together if we're to stay together. And hopefully it's the Holy Spirit that will allow us to think in terms of who is the Cornelius in my life? That I can't think of these matters without thinking of it in a more personal way. For Peter, it was Cornelius. For Paul, it was Lydia. The Gentile by the creek with all the other women. For Jesus, it was just all of us. All of us. Sinners that we are. Under that tent that's held up by grace. And is that tent big enough. For us to allow the Holy Spirit. To to have us be honest with one another. And to deal with these matters in such a way. That we reach godly conclusions. May God bless us in our diversity. May God bless us in our experience of grace and love. And may God bless us as we continue to be honest and to be that church with no shams, no make-believe, no halfway measures. Amen? Amen.